0: You are tuned to KVMR FM Nevada City KCPC Camino. It's time for the KVMR Evening News for Thursday, November 19, 2020. For their support, we'd like to thank Scraps Cat and Dog Bakery. Open 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Monday through Saturday, offering deliveries and curbside pickup at 2034 Nevada City Highway, next to BNC Hardware, 530 274 4493. Mama Madrone's Eco Emporium on Broad Street, Nevada City, and online. Offering earth-friendly, sustainably made clothing, local and fair trade, artisan gifts, home decor, and more. Online store and information, mamamadrones.com. Well, tonight's newscast will include NPR National Headlines, as well as Bravehearts, a program about homelessness hosted by William Wallace and Betty Louise, Then we're going to bring you the Public News Service headlines from around the country. Then Steve Baker will report on Governor Gavin Newsom's emergency proclamation issued this morning for Mono County regarding the Mountain View fire which exploded yesterday. Closing out our newscast will be Molly Fisk with an essay. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, it's Money Matters with Mark Cunaberti. And at 7 o'clock, we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Felton Pruitt. Now here's NPR with today's National headlines.
1: Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President-elect Joe Biden says his transition team is moving ahead with plans to combat the coronavirus pandemic. But as NPR's Windsor-Johnston reports, the White House is refusing to give Biden access to the nation's top public health experts, even as the number of infections continues to hit daily highs.
2: The nation's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci, says a delay in essential transition talks between the Trump and incoming Biden administrations could delay the nation's response to the pandemic at a critical time.
1: There has not been any form of discussions with the the Biden uh, people on this. That kind of thing makes it easier to just go from one to the other. So yes,
3: I would wish that we would be able to do that. That would be helpful.
2: President-elect Biden warned this week that more Americans could die if Trump keeps refusing to coordinate planning for the distribution of a vaccine when it becomes available. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
1: An alarming jump in the number of patients hospitalized with COVID-19. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention today issued its sharpest warning to date. The CDC advising Americans not to travel for Thanksgiving, citing the exponential growth in cases across the country. Hospitalizations were up 50% in the past two weeks, with 79,000 people hospitalized and undergoing treatment. On average, new cases are running at more than 160,000 a day. More than a quarter of a million Americans have now died from COVID-19. The nation's leading group of pediatricians is urging vaccine researchers to include children in clinical trials of any vaccine. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports so far no children under the age of 12 have been included in trials in the U.S.
4: The American Academy of Pediatrics has written to policymakers calling for quick action to include children. Sally Goza, the president of the group, says as more promising data
2: arrives, it's important to know if the vaccines are safe and effective in children.
1: We've had over a million children test positive for COVID, and children suffer in other ways from this disease. So it's really, it's unjust to allow them to take on the burdens of this disease and not offer them a vaccine.
4: She says pediatricians are concerned that there won't be a vaccine for children before The school year starts next fall. Allison Aubrey, NPR News.
1: While the global economy looked a bit better for the three months ending in September, the International Monetary Fund says the latest upsurge in coronavirus cases around the world is likely to slow economic growth in the final months of this year. IMF managing director Kristalina Georgieva saying, while significant progress on the vaccine front has given some hope, the virus has claimed more than a million lives worldwide and resulted in tens of millions of lost jobs. On Wall Street, stocks managed to eke out modest gains today. The Dow up 44 points. The Nasdaq rose 103 points. The S&P 500 was up 14 points today. You're listening to NPR. Online content provider BuzzFeed says it is buying HuffPost from Verizon, part of a larger deal in which the giant telecommunications company will up its investment in digital media. BuzzFeed and Verizon did not disclose terms of the deal, but Verizon will be a minority shareholder in BuzzFeed. AOL bought what was then known as the Huffington Post for $315 million in 2011. The deal is expected to close early next year. The housing market continues to boom despite the coronavirus pandemic. As NPR's Chris Arnold explains, sales of existing homes are up nearly 27 percent from a year ago, and prices hit a new record.
0: The median home price in the U.S. is higher than ever at $313,000. Low interest rates and a record low number of homes for sale are both pushing up prices. Lawrence Yoon is the chief economist of the National Association of Realtors. He says that's not a healthy situation because prices are rising so fast, it makes homeownership unaffordable for
5: too many people. We are simply facing a housing shortage, major housing shortage. We need to build more homes. Supply is critical uh, in the current environment.
0: Yoon says as lawmakers look to help the economy, policymakers at the national and local level should find ways to boost home construction. Chris Arnold, NPR
1: News. According to the most experienced veteran who was rocketed to the International Space Station aboard SpaceX's Dragon capsule, the new system beats NASA's old shuttles and Russia's current spacecraft. Japanese astronaut Sochi Noguchi saying the Dragon is fun to ride. SpaceX delivered its crew to the space station on Monday. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News.
0: You are tuned to the KVMR Evening News.
1: Welcome. To this edition of Bravehearts,
0: where we
2: hope to increase your awareness and understanding of what homelessness looks like, and some of the many organizations working on solutions to improve the homeless crisis.
6: We
1: are your hosts, William Wallace
2: and Betty Louise,
1: and these are the Bravehearts.
4: Hello, everybody. I am here with. Carol, who is an advocate with the organization Sierra Roots, what have your experiences been with sitting at the lunches and and just listening to their stories? Are there any stories that stick out in your mind? Yeah, several. Well, I think Martin's story is a really good story because he's a jeweler. The self-worth that people have. When you can talk to somebody and reflect back the self-worth they've just said to you. If they have any, you know, they'll tell you things like, oh, I've been an arborist all my life, or I've been a jeweler all my life, or I am a gypsy person all my life, or whatever is their self-image that is right there advocating, in my opinion, just hearing and receiving and receiving whatever they uh, communicate to you that is their best image, which most of us do, right? Mm-hmm. When we meet a new person, best
6: foot forward, okay. as they foot say. Forward,
4: exactly. Usually, I'm sure that your experience, because you're an advocate too, is that uh, nestled inside of that best foot forward, you can sense or hear a direction. Sometimes you're advocating for a couple. Is that? I right? am. Why don't you just share what your experience with it? Janice had gone and said at the Thursday meal, which Sierra Ritz puts on if anyone would like an advocate, please tell me, because we have kind of a new batch of advocates coming out. The week before this happened, I had sat down with this couple, Vadi and Judy, spent lunchtime with them. And so then Janice says, and here are the people that said that they might be interested in having an advocate. And Vadi and Judy were in there. So I said, I'll take Vadi and Judy. So I did. Meaning that the next week when I went, I asked them, if it would be all right with them if i were their advocate whatever that would mean to them they said yes they didn't really know what that meant right just like me (laughs) yeah (laughs) none of us all feeling our way with it anyway i said okay so then that first week i talked together with them for a while then judy who is a very sensitive woman pretended she was going to go get coffee or something so that she could give body a space alone with me and so he and i talked and he is a musician he's it's it's a very strong part of his identity is that he is a musician a gypsy musician sometimes is paid sometimes is not i believe they met at when they were both at at, um utah's place and they have been together for about two or three years now i guess you know, when I asked him, what what would you like? What he said was he'd like a place where he could play his music, teach his music, and I think also play for himself because that's one of the hard things. You know, you are always outside. That's what he wanted. Yeah. So tell, tell us about Judy. I made a heavy date with Judy because we didn't have that much time to talk. And I said, I've really enjoyed talking with Buddy, but I'd love to talk with you too. So we met a few days later in Grass Valley. And we sat outside of Caroline's and had coffee and talked. What a lovely woman she is, a, a totally lovely person. You know, she's had a hard life. Well, we've all had hard lives, right? In, in our discussion, I said, well, what's giving you joy in your life? And she said, well, you know, when I was a kid, I played the violin in the school orchestra. And that was something I just really enjoyed. And I said, oh, well, I play the violin too. I have a violin in my storage shed. Maybe I could just give it to you to use and we could play together. Would you like to do that? And she said, oh, yeah, that, yeah, that would be really nice. Anyway, so we met outside my church and a little courtyard by the nursery room. that's kind of enclosed. And we sat there and we just played together. And, you know, her technique that she got when she was a little girl is excellent. She has much better position than I have the way she held the instrument and the way she bowed. She had excellent bowing. And sorry, I've taught a billion children. Started oh, wow. So you so, really have an eye for it. It was really great for me. And then afterwards, after we played for about an hour, and then we just sat there for another hour, and she just talked about things.
1: Thank you for joining us today. Our hope is this segment has opened your heart and mind Be well and be
3: kind.
2: This project was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please visit calhum.org.
0: You are tuned to the KVMR Evening News.
3: The Public News Service Daily Newscast, November 19, 2020. I'm Mike Clifford. Coronavirus cases across the nation are spiking at alarming rates. New data from AARP shows nationwide nursing home infections are no longer declining. We get some perspective now from Kentucky.
2: Advocates are calling for increased transparency, staffing, PPE, and testing. So far, 1,095 long-term care facility residents and staff in the Commonwealth have died, totaling more than 65 percent of all COVID-19-related deaths in the state. Long-term care ombudsman Sherry Culp says facilities should start communicating now about how they'll help residents and families stay connected and safe during the holidays. So facilities need to be planning now for increased phone calls, increased video chats. They need to be preparing if someone wants to drop a holiday gift off to their mother. Culp notes that over the past four weeks, residents and staff cases have begun to tick upward. Yet AARP's findings show that in every state, nursing homes are experiencing shortages of direct care workers and PPE, particularly N95 masks, gowns, gloves, and eye protection. Nationwide, more than 91,000 residents and staff have died from COVID-19. I'm Nadia Ramlagan.
0: You're listening to Headlines from the Public News Service here on KVMR.
3: City elections in St. Louis will change next year after residents approved a nonpartisan primary system, what's known as approval voting. Chris Raleigh of the Center for Election Science says voting reforms get heavy focus in coastal areas, so having Heartland residents endorse this approach is a big deal.
0: They're sick of uh, bad elections and bad government like anybody else.
3: People skeptical about approval voting say, that voters might be tempted to use ballot strategy by second-guessing, adding other choices so they don't harm their preferred candidate. The center says no system can fully guarantee a majority winner when there are more than two candidates. Climate action programs are outlining their priorities for the 2021 legislative session in Oregon. Eric Tegedoff explains.
0: In the previous two sessions, Republicans have walked out over a carbon pricing bill they say would disproportionately hurt rural Oregonians. Next year, groups will look to other areas in the fight against climate change. Oriana Maniera with the organization Verde says one of its top priorities is a statewide energy standard.
2: We're not just looking at 100% clean energy and building a path to a clean energy future, but
4: also building in some of these other elements that address justice in our energy system.
3: Lawmakers convene in Salem on September the 19th. This is PMS. In an already challenging year, advocates for sexual assault survivors in Ohio are grappling with major funding cuts.
2: The state's network of crime victim service programs and agencies relies almost exclusively on funding from the Victims of Crime Act, known as VOCA. In 2019, VOCA grants decreased by 25 percent. And for the new fiscal year, funding is cut nearly 40 percent across the state. Taylor Ucker Lauderman with the Ohio Alliance to End Sexual Violence says that's about 20 million fewer dollars, and Ohio was left to pick up the pieces. We've built some
1: amazing programs around crime victim rights, around forensic kit testing, around law enforcement strategies. Ohio never was supporting these programs on its own, and we can't just automatically start doing that. So we need federal legislators to also bridge this
2: gap. VOCA is funded entirely through fines and penalties paid by federal criminal offenders. So fewer prosecutions means fewer dollars. Hucker Lauterman thinks funding for victim services needs to be more diversified and include dedicated state and federal sources. Mary Sherman reporting.
3: And new research is revealing some policies and behaviors referred to as predatory by for-profit colleges in Michigan. Senior policy analyst with the Michigan League for Public Policy, Peter Rorick, says according to the group's findings, many for-profit schools have already been penalized for consumer protection violations.
1: Things such as deceiving students about their accreditation and internship opportunities, deceptive predatory tactics for borrowers, misrepresenting courses.
3: He adds that the research also found for-profit colleges tend to recruit students who are economically vulnerable. Finally, our Suzanne Potter tells us that the states of California and Oregon are stepping in to revive a Klamath River Dam removal project that's been in the works now for a decade.
4: On Tuesday, the states announced a deal with the hydroelectric dam operator Pacific Corps and the nonprofit Klamath River Renewal Corporation to remove the Iron Gate, COPCO-1 and COPCO-2 dams in California and the J.C. Boyle Dam in Oregon. Yurok Tribe Vice Chairman Frankie Myers says restoration of the river means restoration of their culture.
1: The health of the people and the health of the land are intertwined and when the land is sick, when the river is sick, so are the people and As the land gets better and heals itself, so will the
6: people.
3: I'm Suzanne Potter. The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, also called FERC, has to approve the deal. The $450 million project was financed through a water bond in California and a small consumer rate increase on electricity. This is Mike Clifford for Public News Service. Member and listener supported, heard on radio stations across the nation, and viewed now on Free Speech TV.
0: Next up on the KVMR Evening News, Steve Baker reports on Governor Gavin Newsom's emergency proclamation order he issued this morning for Mono County regarding the Mountain View fire, which exploded yesterday.
7: Governor Gavin Newsom has signed another fire emergency proclamation order. This one is for Mono County, citing what's called the Mountain View fire's growth to some 20,000 acres now and has resulted in at least one fatality, forcing the evacuation of hundreds of residents and threats to critical infrastructure. The fire is now 20% contained in Walker, California. Other towns impacted include Colville, Topaz, and the Camp Antelope Native American community. No additional fire growth is currently anticipated, and deputies have lifted some of the evacuation orders. Newsom also citing the loss of some 80 structures, including homes, as another reason for the emergency proclamation. The Sacramento Bee says the Mountain View uh, wildfire ignited midday Tuesday south of the Topaz Lake near the California Nevada border, that incident quickly swelled to five thousand acres amid eighty mile per hour winds, forcing evacuations and closing a stretch of Highway 395. That according to the Mono County Sheriff's Office, deputies on Wednesday confirmed one person was killed in the blaze, adding in a social media post, we are not aware of any other significant injuries and no persons have been reported missing. The fire has charred over twenty thousand acres and is twenty percent contained, according to officials. Gusty winds have continued but rain that started to fall around 3 a.m. Wednesday has helped calm some of the fire activity, as reported Wednesday morning by the Record Courier newspaper in Douglas County, Nevada. Meanwhile... A day after a wind-whipped wildfire in northern Nevada roared through a neighborhood in Reno and destroyed at least five houses, more than 1,000 people who were forced to evacuate, including the mayor, started returning home. That information coming to us from the Associated Press. Two firefighters were injured while battling that blaze over two square miles but had been treated and released. One suffered an allergic reaction and the other injured a leg while helping evacuate some 1,300 residents. For KVMR News, I'm Steve Baker.
5: Welcome to World Ocean Radio. I'm Peter Neal, director of the World Ocean Observatory. Problems demand solutions which in turn demand recognition of the challenge to hand a serious determination to seek a serious response and courage to explore alternatives, inventions, and change. If the challenge is to be met by equitable solution, then a complete examination of past behaviors must be a first step toward the creation of new ones, an understanding of the core premises of past failures, the foundation on which old structures and patterns were built, and the flawed assumptions on which they have stood. We are faced essentially with a value proposition. We have believed in and acted upon certain ideas historically beneficial until they were not democracy, social betterment, public health, equality of income and access, all promoted as the basis for goals and aspirations, policies, laws, ideologies, and social, political action. For centuries we practiced this intention, in some instances dramatically realized, in others not advanced at all, beyond the illusion of best intent. We have been a racist culture since the beginning. We have capitalized the differentiation of opportunity, education, labor, and access to a proverbial dream in one iteration after another to reach a point today where inequity abounds and these institutions are suspect. The old value system was based on growth, driven primarily by consumption, enabled by exploitation or extraction of natural resources, the fertile land, abundant water, timber, oil, coal, and other minerals, now all under stress, near exhaustion. Population density, global exchange of goods and services to stoke the economic engine, now exacerbated by consequent climate change and pandemic, have brought us to the edge, regardless of origin, place, class, or condition. This must change. As I have argued before, a new paradigm must be defined, accepted, and shared, managed growth, based on the conservation and sustainability of all natural resources, particularly the freshwater ocean continuum, without which society, from individual to family to world community, cannot survive. There are hopeful signs of this transfer of priority and purpose, citizen actions and initiatives that challenge the status quo, the market reality of transfer of energy generation to alternatives that confront past consequence and enhance volume, viability and vitality as counterforce for change. The inevitability of mitigation and adaptation strategies are surpassed by invention of new technology, process, and communication. Political movements are born. Citizen initiatives are begun. New leaders emerge. New ideas are encouraged and welcomed by corporate and social innovators who see new value and powerful return in new investment. My optimism is driven by the youth movement and engagement at all levels of governance that will overturn the regressive context of fear and failure and take opportunity and their future in hand. We either join them or get out of the way. It's easy to say, but harder to do. And these efforts must be augmented by new tools beyond conventional legislation and political agenda. What are these new tools for value change and implementation? Over the next few weeks, I will try to enumerate and articulate them here and address what basic attitude shifts and innovations will be required to enable progress. Here are some questions to be asked and answered. How will we structure a new economy from its linear connection as measured by gross national product, financial investment returns, and market fluctuations to a circular connection as measured by increased standards of living, social investment return, and integrated markets that distribute, sustain, and guarantee goods and services beyond speculation into the future? How will we assess and account for what is the real cost and true profit for everyone within the system? How will we use these tools to retrofit our infrastructure and existing systems and to apply to the realization of future innovation? How will we catalyze and incentivize change? How will we account for the complete reconciliation of profit and loss? How will we apply value tools as management guidelines and employment practices? How will we negotiate contracts and agreements at every level of a fully integrated economy and society? How will we regulate and adjudicate abuse and illegality? How will we provide equal justice for all? These questions must be answered as a core response to the problem, after which true change can and will follow. We will discuss these issues and more in future editions of World Ocean Radio. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet.
6: Right now, I'm sitting on my sofa wearing a mask. A friend has come over to write with me, and this is our winter indoors protocol. We are both masked and both writing. The front door is cracked open, and she's ten feet across the living room in a leather chair that creaks when she shifts her weight, like a western saddle. It's raining. I would not invite just anyone into my house. I'm essentially in a pod, as they say, like peas, like whales, of one. But I have some friends I see more often than everyone else, and she's one of them. We've swum every day for six months in a nearby lake, and yesterday it finally got too cold for me, not even worth the bragging rights, so I invited her over to start a new tradition right away. This isolation business is no joke, and I don't want to lose my sanity. It's fun writing with someone else. Not as much fun as swimming, but also companionable and very productive. We don't converse. We say hello, get tea or glasses of water, set the timer for 25 minutes, and write. I'm writing this, as you can hear, and she's writing something about cold water swimming suggested by the New York Times. They don't take everything she sends them, but they like her work. KVMR merely asks me not to say things that will close down the station and incur big fines. More than once I've written about our lake, but since cold water swimming is getting trendy in the news, I may have to stop. There's nothing I hate more than being on trend. And it's everywhere from profiles of octogenarians who swim year-round on the Icelandic coast to pieces promising cold swimming will protect you from dementia. Everyone loved that octopus movie where the guy's free-diving in 48-degree water. I don't mind being protected from dementia, but that's not why I watch Labor Day disappear behind my shoulders and then Halloween. Swimming is summer fun and heat relief, a beautiful landscape just 10 miles from home, and it fulfills the anger management function that keeps me from biting people in the jugular vein when they misbehave. After a swim, I'm the nicest you'll ever know me, blissed out, optimistic, benevolent, relaxed. It's a miracle. I want to hang on to those feelings, as anyone would, and luckily have another friend who's been swimming until December for years. Last fall, she dragged me with her, day after day, which is the only way this works. You have to keep going. If you miss a week, you can't stand how cold it got. It was so bizarre and unlikely for me to walk into the lake in just my bathing suit at 63 degrees, at 61, at 59. It took on a kind of magic. I had no plan except to see how it felt tomorrow. We made it almost to Thanksgiving when a week of rain and 58 degree water finally won. This year my writer friend joined us and we've had a blast. But yesterday the lake was 56. I lost all feeling between my toes and the rest of my skin felt hot and prickly, the way those freezing cures for warts used to feel in the 1960s. My shoulders said to me quietly, Molly, we've had enough. My body doesn't ask me for much and it's carried me for miles through that beautiful teal green water. It seems only fair, after all these years, to be accommodating.
5: Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.
0: Well, that's going to do it for our newscast for this evening. The KVMR Evening News is produced by Paul Emery Music. For their support, we'd like to thank Weiss Hardscaping, introducing low-maintenance, fire-safe, outdoor living space design and installation, including retaining walls, water features, fire pits, also kitchen areas and more. Information, Go Weisshardscaping.com. Well, coming up next, it's Money Matters with Mark Cunaberti. And at 7 o'clock, we bring you Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Felton Pruitt. Have a fine Thursday evening.